Thank you. Uh, please be seated. I'm going to begin with the opening lines of the Odyssey. It's on the handout, but you can just listen if you like. Andra moi enepi musa polutropon hosmala pola plankthe epitroi esieron toliethron epersen polond anthropon iden astea kaino onegno pola dogen ponto paten algea hon katatymon arnumenos hente psykin kainoston hetairon. The Odyssey begins simply or perhaps not so simply, with the word andra, the accusative singular of the noun aner, man. Andra moenepe musa, of the man goddess, sing. The man, however, is not identified by name for another 20 lines. In the Iliad, by contrast, more than half the first line is taken up by the hero's name and patronymic. This is number two. Menina edithea, Peleiadio Achilleios, sing, goddess, of the wrath of Achilles, son of Peleus. When we English speakers try to translate this initial andra, we find it cloaked in a grammatical ambiguity. Because Homer's Greek generally doesn't use a definite or indefinite article, it is not immediately clear whether andra refers to a specific man, the man, to any man, a man, or simply to man in general. And although the noun aner, as the freshman will have just learned, usually refers to man as distinct from woman, while the noun anthropos refers generically to the human, Homer sometimes uses aner in the sense of anthropos, especially when distinguishing mortals and immortals. Just a little further on in Book One, for example, Zeus is introduced as father of both men and gods. Pater andron te the anonymity of the poem's opening word, then, and its ability to embrace both generic and specific meanings seem to obscure the very subject that word so prominently pronounces. About whom, or about what, precisely, is the muse being asked to tell the poet? Of course, the rest of the opening line and opening sentences proceed to qualify the noun Andra, and thus, apparently, to dispel these various uncertainties. Line one continues... Polutropon hosmalapola, of many turns, who very many, there on the word pola, or many, the first line ends. We have to wait until the beginning of line two to learn what malapola, very many, qualifies. Hosmalapola plangthe, who was driven a great many ways, or perhaps who was beaten back so many times. Some kind of multiplicity almost immediately attaches itself to the being who lies concealed in the indeterminacies of that initial andra. Such multiplicity, however, tends to obscure the very specificity we expect modifiers to establish. Identifying or recognizing our man thus proves somewhat problematic. The adjectives and adverbs used to determine what man or what sort of man the poet has in mind are words that not only undermine specificity, but even point actively to non-specificity, many-weighed, or of many turns, or even much-turned. Although the qualifiers polu and pola don't explicitly appear in line two, that line is full of plangent P and L notes, 
which keep that sound of plurality echoing in our ear. Plankthe epitroies hieron ptoliethron epersen, until the theme is openly and very emphatically resumed at the beginning of the third and fourth lines. Many the men whose cities he saw and mind he recognized, many the pains he suffered on the sea in his spirit. Throughout the Odyssey, in fact, the epithets that cling most tenaciously to Odysseus are epithets of multiplicity and manifoldness. In addition to being polytropos, and here you can look at number three on the sheet if you like, in addition to being polytropos, he is polymetis of many counsels, polymechanos of many devices, polyphron of much ingenuity. He tells Penelope he is mala polystonos of, many, of very many sorrows. Nestor and Athena call him poikilometes, of varied counsels. From his old nurse, Eurycleia, we learn that manyness shadowed his very conception. An only child, Odysseus, was oft prayed for, poluaretos. Odysseus' most frequent epithet, however, is polutlas, daring many things, or perhaps enduring many things. Paradoxically, then, manyness attaches even to the attribute that characterizes his ability to resist disintegration, his endurance. Among the diverse things to which the poem's many similes liken Odysseus, one perhaps particularly epitomizes his manyness. As he tries desperately to find some foothold on the rocky shore of Phaeacia, he's likened to an octopus, or to call it by its Greek name, polypus, literally a many foot. Indeed, the many and extraordinarily diverse similes that cluster around Odysseus suggest he might be polytropic in a further sense. Not only is he compared to an octopus, but he's likened to such disparate things as a bat, a weeping widow, a mother dog defending her puppies, a sausage sizzling over a fire, to list just a few. Even Odysseus' own story, which so enthralls his Phaeacian audience, is presented more as a collection of disparate adventures than as a single coherent narrative. He begins by wondering where to begin, since he has so many sorrows or cares. Quote, the cares the heavenly gods have given me are many. He characterizes his own tale of homecoming as one of, quote, many cares. Sorry, quote, let me tell you about my homecoming of many cares. Multiplicity itself, then, takes all manner of shapes and appears in all manner of guises. Our man emerges as plural, variegated, turning, shifting, and is doing so in all manner of ways. He is indeed malapola, exceedingly many, truly many. Recognition, however, surely demands something recognizable and depends on some sort of self-sameness in the object recognized. If the sheer fluidity of things means self-sameness is ultimately illusory, a figment perhaps of the mind's own longing for stability, then recognition isn't really possible. Perhaps the greatest threat to Odysseus' return is thus presented as that very fluidity. We might think of it as manyness in a temporal guise. This fluidity is embodied now as Poseidon, now as the sea and the fighting, now as the sea-washed isle of Calypso, now as Polyphemus, Poseidon's child by the sea nymph Toosa, and repeatedly simply as a great wave that engulfs Odysseus. Homecoming, return, will involve coming to terms with this fluidity. A critical encounter with shape-shifting Proteus, the old man of the sea, features prominently also in Menelaus's story of homecoming. Almost from the outset of the poem, Poseidon's animosity is presented as the fundamental obstacle to Odysseus' homecoming. Quote, 
all the gods pitied him except Poseidon. Homer's muse, appropriately, chooses to begin the tale of Odysseus' homecoming at a moment when Poseidon is, quote, far away, visiting the most remote people, as if only the temporary absence of Poseidon can open a window in which Zeus, albeit even then only after some prompting from Athena, can exhort the other gods to, quote, work out Odysseus' homecoming and see to it that he returns. Athena herself announces her plan to rouse Telemachus. Telemachus, preoccupied though he is with the disorder in the household, is nevertheless quick to perceive a new visitor in the doorway. At this moment, we perhaps catch a faint hint of the opening line, as the poet claims, far the first to see her was godlike Telemachus. Tain de polu protos ide Telemachus teoedes. Polu protos. Is this a very distant echo of polutropos? As if, in Telemachus' response to the stranger at the threshold, our ear might catch just an undercurrent of our variously concealed man. Telemachus, however, seems initially unable even to name his absent father, and either refers to him simply as aner, or points toward him by way of a third-person pronoun. Moreover, the Odysseus, who initially inhabits Telemachus' thoughts, seems fluid to the point of evanescence, at one moment, he imagines his father as a mythic hero whose mere appearance will put the unruly suitors to flight, the epic stuff, perhaps, of a boy's dreams. At another moment, he imagines him as nothing but a pile of white bones at the mercy of the elements. He wishes his father had died honorably at Troy, having, quote, won great fame for himself and his son hereafter. But he concludes that his father has distinguished himself only by vanishing, quote, in a way no other man has done, out of sight, out of knowledge. It seems to require external agency, Athena in the guise of Mentes, to begin to transform Telemachus' vague imaginings into active inquiry. Go out, she tells him, to ask about your father who is so long absent. Calypso. This is number four on the handout. That one alone, longing for his homecoming and his wife, the queenly nymph Calypso, bright among goddesses, detained in her hollowed caverns, desiring that he should be her husband. By line 13, the subject of the poet's song seems to lose even his identity as aner and to be reduced to the peculiar specificity of the pronoun that one, ton, the accusative form of what is in Homer still a demonstrative pronoun. He is, so to speak, singled out only as singular, Tondoyon, that one alone, the poet says. The pronoun has no antecedent. We have not yet heard the name of that one, nor do we hear the names of the particular place and wife he longs to see. But what do I mean by singled out as singular? From Calypso's vantage, I suspect, the main attraction may be simply that this man is a particular other. Such an other is a rare phenomenon in Onogidja, an island washed all round that is the navel of the sea, as Athena describes it. There seems simply to be no others on Ogidja. Odysseus tells the Phaeacians that Calypso is, quote, a dreadful god. There is no one, neither of gods nor of mortal people, who keeps her company. There is no one. Udatis, says Odysseus. To be with Calypso, whose very name means I will cover or conceal or hide, is, I think, to be no one. But Calypso offers particular form of non-being, if non-being can be said to have forms. Calypso, after all, offers to make Odysseus, quote, immortal and ageless, 
which surely sounds like a very full form of being. Her island is not a barren emptiness, but a lush garden, harboring abundant bird life, flourishing vegetation, flowing fountains. She herself is beautiful, seductive. Even an immortal, the poet claims, who came upon that place would have admired what he saw and rejoiced in his heart. Odysseus seems to be held on Ogygia unwillingly. Calypso detains him by constraint, Athena tells the other Olympians. Nevertheless, the sheer length of his sojourn on Calypso's island makes one wonder whether he was once more susceptible to the attractive offer she holds out to him. There may really be, or have been, something terribly appealing to Odysseus about Calypso and that navel of the sea, where he will later claim he, quote, remained fixed for seven years. The ageless immortality Calypso offers is, I think, utterly unlike the immortal fame, sorry, the immortal name, the fame or kleos a hero such as Hector strives for. To live concealed in a cave at the navel of the sea, in what might anachronistically be called a paradisaic, albeit lonely, setting, suggests a loss of the very individuality heroic kleos strives to preserve, to preserve even at the cost of life itself. Calypso's island and the timeless immortality she offers, in words Athena notes that are ever soft and flattering, suggest attempting alternative to that chaos. In place of heroic renown and making a name for oneself, Calypso seems to offer a kind of reabsorption into the womb of all things, an agelessness that is akin to the agelessness of the cosmos itself. From such a vantage, individuality looks like little more than a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, to borrow from another poet. In this Ogidian perspective, the truth of things lies not in individuation, but rather in the unindividuated submersion in the life of all-embracing, all-enveloping being. This is, I think, suggested by the simultaneously sensuous and maternal imagery that surrounds Calypso, the, quote, dread breasts of the deep and the navel of the sea and the great hollow cavern in which Calypso is said to weave and sing. This sort of return to the origin, surely a homecoming of sorts, underlies, I think, the very real temptation Calypso holds out, a temptation especially to a man who has, after 10 years of fighting, perhaps grown rather weary of the bubble reputation. Calypso's longing simply for that one, Ton, suggests a longing on her part to submerge any individual and all individuality in the ageless womb of all being. We should not simply dismiss the attractions, dangerous and seductive as Athena claims they are, of such dissolution in a kind of universal womb. What is to be recognized in this instance is really precisely the insubstantiality of the finite, particular, and individuated. Calypso aspires to swallow Odysseus up, but this sort of swallowing is rich and attractive. Nothing of him that doth fade, but doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. It takes all of Book Five to get Odysseus clear of Ogidja and of the great wave that repeatedly engulfs him and threatens to swallow him completely. Calypso's continuing hold on him is reflected in the repeated use of the verb calypto, even after he finally crawls ashore on the island of Scaria. The Phaeacians. The Phaeacians seem a people of picnics and ball games, of laundry and laughter. Theirs appears to be an ideal community, far from troublesome neighbors, civilized, 
and generally what we might nowadays term non-adversarial. Nausicaa reports that, quote, the Phaeacians have no concern with the bow or the quiver. And Alcanoas tells Odysseus that Phaeacian men don't much go in for contact sports like boxing and wrestling. Theirs is a city in which the laws of hospitality are inviolable, but also, oddly, a city that holds itself apart and is apparently suspicious of strangers. Phaeacian ships are magically self-steering vessels that, quote, know the cities of all men and their fertile fields. Such universal knowledge of all men, panton anthropon, is reflected in the Phaeacians' undiscriminating observation of the laws of hospitality. Quote, we are convoy without hurt to absolutely all, hapanton. Admirable as this universal recognition seems to be, the indiscriminate generosity of the Phaeacians is not unproblematic. Their history is overshadowed by a prophecy that this very failure to differentiate will one day prove their undoing. This is number five on the handout. My father, Nausithoas, told me how Poseidon would yet be angry with us because we give harmless convoy to absolutely all. He said that one day, as a well-made ship of Phaeacian men came back from a convoy on the misty face of the water, he would stun it and pile a great mountain over the city to hide it. It is a bit hard to know what is true of such a storied place. It will in part depend on whether we take Nausicaa's words to the stranger at face value. It is described as a place at once natural and unnatural, its vegetation oddly immune to the seasons, bearing flowers and fruit year-round, its watchdogs creatures of gold and silver that remain, quote, immortal and unaging all their days. Almost exactly the phrase, incidentally, in which Calypso's offer to Odysseus is framed. The people of Phaeacia are mortal, but they are also ankitheoi, close to the gods. Not only are both King Alcinous and Queen Arete direct descendants of Poseidon, but according to Alcinous, his is a people to whom the gods show themselves clearly without concealment. However directly they interact with the gods, the Phaeacians nevertheless seem to experience the fullness of human life at a remove. Delighting as they do in song and story and changes of clothing and hot baths and beds, as Alcanoas puts it, they seem a people who might be said to give preference to virtual realities. Human suffering is, for the Phaeacians, really never more than a fiction. Alcanoas notices Odysseus dissolving in tears as Demodocus sings of the Trojan horse, but Alcanoas cannot really fathom those tears. Quote, and tell me why you weep in your heart and make lamentation when you hear of the Argives and the Danans' venture and hear of Ilion. The gods did this and spun the destruction of, men, destruction of peoples for the sake of the singing of men hereafter. Odysseus responds by enthralling the Phaeacians with a very different kind of tale. Cyclops. The literal swallowing up of men Odysseus attributes to the Cyclops seems a far cry from the metaphorical swallowing up of the individual suggested by the various accounts of Ogygia. Whereas Calypso offers to lull and annul in the ageless womb of all things, Polyphemus simply devours and annihilates. The only guest gift he, off only guest gift he offers, the only distinction he is able or willing to make, is to save Utis for dessert, as it were. The deliberate and active obliteration of others in which Polyphemus engages seems the most extreme form of non-recognition. 
Odysseus' short description of the Cyclops slapping men against the floor, quote, like killing puppies, suggests Polyphemus doesn't regard the men he devours as beings of the same kind as himself. That is, here even generic recognition seems to fail. The Polyphemus episode occurs early in Odysseus' tale of his voyage from Troy. His account unobtrusively links this episode to the very first incident he tells the Phaeacians of. That initial incident is one that reveals much about a captain and a crew who've just left Troy after 10 years of fighting. Odysseus relates that after sailing from Troy, his ships were driven aground at the city of Ismaros, a Caconian city on the coast of Thrace. Ismaros lies not far from Troy. In the Iliad, the Caconians, in fact, appear as Trojan allies. Odysseus tells the Phaeacians that he and his men raided the city of Ismaros. Although we're aware of such raids in the Iliad, the attack Odysseus describes seems brutally succinct. Quote, I sacked the city and killed them. And out of their city, taking their wives and many possessions, we shared them out so none might go cheated of his fair share. Although Odysseus presents himself as savvy enough and restrained enough to know when to leave, his men, he says, knew no such restraint. Quote, they were greatly foolish and would not listen. Now, in the middle of his tale of the Cyclops, he reminds his audience of that raid, describing it as the source of the extremely potent wine that enabled him to save himself and most of his men from becoming Polyphemus' supper. He says this remarkable wine was given him as a gift by a Caconian priest whose wife and child Odysseus had spared from the general slaughter. Whatever Odysseus himself may intend by telling the story of his singular act of clemency in the midst of a mass killing, the reminder, precisely here at the beginning of the Cyclops episode of that brutal attack, may hint that the sort of annihilation Polyphemus is engaged in is not altogether unlike the sort of mass extermination the Achaean forces have themselves become accustomed to after 10 years in Troy. 10 years of warfare appear to have produced a mentality that obscures what it is to be human, unair. Odysseus, for his part, also seems uncertain whether Polyphemus is a being of the same kind as himself. After initially identifying Polyphemus as a human of monstrous, mountainous dimensions, quote, an enormous man, he revises that description, identifying Polyphemus instead as, quote, an enormous wonder, and then deciding that this wonder is in fact, and this is number six on your handout, this wonder is in fact, quote, not like a man, ude e oike andri, an eater of bread, but more like a wooded peak of the Mahai Mountains seen standing away from the others. While it might have seemed that the generic human would be easier to recognize than the individual, it now seems that this basic distinction of kind threatens to dissolve. Is Polyphemus human, an anair? Does his anthropophagy amount to cannibalism? Such dissolution of generic boundaries becomes all the more acute in Odysseus' brief tale of the Lystragonians. While the Cyclops have neither laws nor political institutions, and so perhaps more readily slip into non-human categories, the Lystragonians live in cities and have both family and political life. Here too, Odysseus relates, he, quote, sent companions ahead, telling them to find out what men, eaters of bread, might live here in this country. This is exactly the same darkly ironic sentence he used in recounting his visit to the land of the Cyclops. Odysseus expects to discover a certain kind of people, hoitines aneris, in each place. 
Such differences are presumably the very ground for his curiosity in finding out what type of people inhabit each locality. Odysseus, of course, discovers that, like Polyphemus, the Lystragonians have a taste for human flesh. They are not so much eaters of bread as eaters of men. Again, Odysseus tells his tale and then unwinds the thread. The king's wife is initially described as, quote, a woman as big as a mountain peak. But after relating that the king, quote, snatched up one of my companions and prepared him for dinner, Odysseus comments that the Lystragonians, who subsequently came swarming up from every direction, were in fact, quote, not like men, uk andresin, but like giants. It's not merely their size, presumably, that makes Odysseus substitute gigantes for andres, giants for men, before describing how the Lystragonians proceeded to, quote, hurl man-sized boulders at the Achaeans, killing men and smashing ships, and, quote, speared them like fish and carried them away for their joyless feasting. The insubstantiality to which the human, aner, is here reduced is reflected, I think, in the adjective andrachthes. This is number seven on your uh, handout. Andrachthes, that describes the rocks they hurl, literally something like man-burdening, or perhaps as big as a man can carry. The adjective andrachthes not only reduces aner from substance to accident, noun to adjective, but makes of aner a mere qualifier of a qualifier, a mere piece of an adjective describing the size of a rock. Odysseus himself, then, is at best ambivalent about whether man-eating cyclops and man-spearing Lystragonians can rightly be called human. In both cases, that initial classification is then rejected. Quote, not like a man, but a wooded peak of the mountains. Not like men, but like giants. The poem itself, however, hints, albeit quietly, at a link between the Cyclops' puppy-slapping and Odysseus's city-sacking, manslaughtering approach to the Kikonians. Are we to recognize that the attack on Ismaros may bear some likeness to Polyphemus' man-eating ways? I don't want to overemphasize the link, but only to suggest it invites us to ask whether we are simply to reject the inhumane as non-human, not like a man, or whether it too belongs to many-weighed man. Circe. Circe's distinctive dissolution of kinds, quote, they took on the look of pigs, but the minds within them stayed as they had been before, seems to reduce the individual to material for endless remakings. I'd like to venture that Odysseus finds such a view of Aner not simply unattractive. While the year spent on Circe's island pales in comparison with the seven spent on Calypso's, it does take the exhortations of his men to persuade Odysseus to leave Aiaia. Moreover, Odysseus seems curiously unable to tell this part of his story without figuratively presenting himself and his men as animals, as if even the moly couldn't entirely block the magic of Circe's potions and wand. Odysseus' account of Aiaia concludes by figuratively transforming men into cows. Number eight. And as in the country, the calves around the cows returning from pasture, back to the dung of the farmyard, well filled with grazing, come gambling together to meet them, and the pens no longer can hold them in, but lowing incessantly, they come running around their mothers. So these men, once their eyes saw me, came streaming around me. The metamorphoses Circe is reported to effect are echoed by the figurative transformations enacted by the poem's similes, which, however briefly, 
invite us to see one thing in another, to view Aner as bovine, leonine, canine by turns, and perhaps to consider even the octopus as a reflection of man of many turns. Hades. It may strike us as surprising that it is in Hades that recognizing Odysseus seems least problematic, at least once the shades have been allowed to drink animal blood. Tiresias Odysseus says, recognize me, eme degno. The verb egno, the aorist of gignosco, recognize or know, is repeated as first his mother Anticleia, then Agamemnon, Achilles, and finally Heracles in turn engage with Odysseus. In Hades, Odysseus encounters the shades of heroes and mothers of heroes and learns bitterly as he tries to embrace his mother's soul that from the vantage of Hades, an individual life appears completely insubstantial. This is number nine. Three times I rushed towards her, and my spirit told me to hold her. Three times from my hands, like a shadow or a dream, she fluttered out. Anticlea tells him this is, quote, the appointed way when they die for all mortals. From Achilles, Odysseus hears how empty a famous name can be. Better to be the nameless serf of an unpropertied man than, quote, king over all the perished dead. In the darkness of Hades, divorced from time and place, the individual seems little more than an illusion, a walking shadow. This is still number nine. How could you endure to come down to the house of Hades, where the dead dwell insensate, mere images of mortals worn out by toil? Is there any way back up out of this underworldly vision of the individual? Ithaca. The poet's account of the voyage from Phaeacia to Ithaca recalls the openings, the Odyssey's opening verses, and takes us back to the very beginning of the poem. This is number 10 on the handout. Andra ferustate ois in alinkia mede echonta, hos prin men malapola path algia hon catathumon, Andron te tolmus allegena te kumata peron. Ferrying a man with purposes like those of the gods, who before then suffered so many pains in his spirit, going through wars of men and painful waves. Two of these lines begin with the noun aner. While the language describing the man's ordeals on land and sea, malapola pat algea hon catathumon, strongly echoes the poem's opening lines. The initial polutropon hos malapola, however, is now expanded to theoisin alinkia mede echonta, having purposes like those of the gods. There now seems little confusion about the character of the man the Phaeacian oarsmen are ferrying. If this individual is hard to classify, it is only because he has a purposiveness that appears to transcend ordinary human boundaries. Nevertheless, he seems not yet fully to have come into his name. As Odysseus wakens from his death-like sleep to this new beginning, he is inwardly and outwardly steeped in a haze of non-recognition. Quote, Godlike Odysseus woke up from sleeping in his fatherland, but he did not recognize it, having been away a long time. For the goddess Pallas Athena, daughter of Zeus, poured a mist over all, so that she could make him unrecognizable and plot each detail that his wife might not recognize him before that, and the citizens and his friends before he punished the suitors for all their transgression. 
Shining and godlike as Odysseus now appears, he is nevertheless unable to detect the basic geographic features that would identify this particular place as Ithaca, having now been absent for a long time, the poet suggests. Odysseus quickly concludes that this is just one more place like others, inhabited by mortals who will prove either, quote, savage and not just, or hospitable to strangers. Nor does he recognize that the young shepherd who addresses him is in fact Athena, so he tells a story to conceal his name. Despite his recent sojourn in a land where the gods appear openly to mortals, Odysseus does not recognize Athena until she drops her disguise and asserts she has in fact been always standing beside and protecting him. Athena tells Odysseus he must first go to the steading of Eumaeus. Book 14 opens in inarticulate sounds of non-recognition as Eumaeus's quote, wild baying dogs run with great outcry at a man they clearly identify as someone unknown to them. Eumaeus hurries to the rescue of one he addresses simply as old man. Eumaeus' ability to acknowledge and welcome a person he does not know is set against the animal's dogged rejection of the unknown man. Eumaeus not only performs the customary rites of guest friendship, but perhaps also feels a particular sympathy for a stranger who looks like, quote, an ancient old man and is dressed in tattered, squalid, smoke-blackened clothes. Speaking of the shame he'd have suffered if his dogs had mauled the newcomer, Eumaeus mentions the pains and sorrows, algea, he himself suffers in the absence of a master he calls godlike. Even more significantly, the swineherd imagines his absent master in conditions rather like the stranger's. Quote, that one, needing sustenance, wanders somewhere in a land and city of people who speak a different language. While Eumaeus welcomes, we might even say recognizes, the unknown wanderer as simply a man in need of sustenance and shelter, he also unwittingly assures Odysseus that he is recalled as a godlike master. Although Eumaeus does not name his absent master, Odysseus is nonetheless almost named. As Eumaeus describes his grief for his godlike master, the initial syllables of the participle, oduromenos, grieving, offer just a hint of Odysseus' name. The syllables, odu, hint softly at the way odusios is indirectly on Eumaeus' mind. A gentle assonance evokes the mournful sound of Odysseus' name, but the swineherd seems unable to summon that name to full presence. Eumaeus' deep reverence for the laws and ways of guest friendship is emphasized. When Odysseus thanks the swineherd for his gracious reception of the stranger, Eumaeus again points to the demands of guest friendship. Three lines in a row begin with the word xenos. This is number 11. Stranger, it is not right not even if one worse off than you should come, that the stranger be dishonored, for under the protection of Zeus are all strangers and vagabonds. The insistent all, hapantes, seems distinct, I think, from the equally insistent but more abstract all that marks Alcanoas's speech. Eumaeus's claim is immediately followed by further recollections of his master. Quote, the gods have stopped the homeward voyage of that one who cared kindly for me and granted me such possessions as a good-natured lord grants to the thrall of his house. As Eumaeus explains his reception of an unknown and indigent man, the interplay between generic recognition, all strangers, xenoi, 
and vagabonds are under the protection of Zeus, and the memories of a particular person suggests that such recognition or acknowledgement binds the generic with the specific. As Eumaeus welcomes the Xenos, he thinks of another man who may be in like circumstances. Yet his ability to picture his master among foreigners is surely also deeply connected with his own early experience of such displacement. Later, Eumaeus will relate that he is himself a king's son who has been reduced, not quite to beggary, but to feeding pigs in a foreign land. Eumaeus is surely one of the most attractive figures in the Odyssey. It's no coincidence that the poet himself repeatedly addresses Eumaeus in the second person. It is really the swineherd, I think, who finally undoes Circe's spell. While Circe turns men into pigs, Eumaeus is able, without any magical moly, to live and even sleep beside his pigs while retaining the fullest humanity. That humanity becomes most apparent paradoxically as he leaves the comforts of his warm hut to spend the night sleeping outside with his pigs in the hollow of a rock. Though he dwells with pigs, there is not the least confusion of kinds in Eumaeus. It is Penelope's persistent inability or insistent refusal to recognize Odysseus that presents, even after the destruction of the suitors, the final and apparently insuperable obstacle to his homecoming. Penelope readily welcomes the stranger and observes likenesses between this vagabond and the absent Odysseus, noting that the stranger is the same age as Odysseus and speculating that Odysseus must by this time have just such hands and feet as the stranger. Quote, for in misfortune, mortals quickly grow bent with age. The stranger's presence also puts the old nurse Eurycleia in mind of Odysseus. She envisions servants, quote, in the houses of far-off strangers, teasing her absent master. A little later, the loyal cowherd Philoetius looks at the stranger and recalls Odysseus. Since, Philoetius remarks, I think he too is wearing such rags as this. For both Eurycleia and Philoetius, such recognition of likenesses is prelude to specific recognition by way of Odysseus' scar, an external physical sign that marks this man and lets him stand out as Odysseus. Twice, however, Eurycleia attempts to identify Odysseus to her mistress by means of this scar and fails dramatically. What then will move Penelope from observing general likenesses between Odysseus and the stranger to recognizing that this is indeed Odysseus? The last books of the Odyssey explore this very question as they present Penelope with a string of opportunities for recognition. The stranger's story of a finely wrought brooch, Penelope's dream of the geese, Odysseus stringing of the bow and destruction of the suitors. At the heart of their initial interview is Odysseus' story, in which she responds to Penelope's insistent questions about his identity by claiming to be a man from Crete who entertained Odysseus on his way to Troy. The stranger's tale, and particularly his detailed description of the intricate brooch he says Odysseus was wearing at that time, takes Penelope back, vividly and concretely, to the day, some 20 years earlier, when she saw Odysseus off and, quote, attached the shining pin to be his adornment. Although the shared memory of that remarkable brooch and his marvelous description of it must in some way bind her to the man who stands before her, it also sharpens Penelope's already vivid memories of her husband. Thus, the luminous memory that the story awakens also obstructs rec recognition. Penelope's acute recollection of that long-ago day and fond mental image of her departing husband can bear little relation to the aged man who now stands before her, much as she is clearly at some level aware 
that, quote, Odysseus must by this time have just such hands and feet as the stranger. The stranger's presence and his detailed description of the clothing and the ornament worn by the departing Odysseus arouse distinct images of Odysseus, but the ragged stranger now before her bears little resemblance to those bright memories to which she so strongly clings. In Book 20, she dreams of Odysseus, quote, as he was when he went with the army, while in Book 23 she tells him directly, quote, I know very well what you were like when you went in the ship with the sweeping oars. No matter how altered Odysseus' visible aspect may be, Eurycleia immediately noted a further resemblance between the stranger and her lord, his voice. This voice comes to play a central role in a strange dream Penelope tells Odysseus about. Penelope asks the stranger to interpret a dream she had in which her 20 pet geese were destroyed by a marauding eagle. One peculiar feature of the dream is that in the dream itself, the eagle returns and, assuming a human voice, interprets the dream for Penelope. This voice begins by telling her that the dream is not a dream but a waking vision, which will come to fulfillment. According to the voice, the 20 geese feeding at the trough are the greedy suitors, while the eagle is none other than Odysseus himself. When Penelope awoke to find her geese still alive, the vision was, of course, on a literal level, proved false. Thus, in a playful pun, Penelope suggests that the dream is in fact one of those dreams that deceive elephantai and issue through the carved gate of ivory, elephantos. Only figuratively and by means of interpretation can the dream prove true. Like Penelope, we are confused by the dream. Aside from the simple numerical discrepancy between dream and reality, the suitors are after all far more than 20, if the geese represent the suitors, Penelope's professed delight in watching them and her sorrow at their death are surely puzzling. Although Penelope hasn't heard him, we have just heard Odysseus tell Eurycleia that he has, quote, come in the 20th year back to my own country. It is possible then that the geese remind us of the 20 years that stand between the Odysseus Penelope remembers and clings to and the worn stranger who now faces her. What will it mean to set aside those two decades and the vivid memories on which she fixed as she navigated the hard course of those years? As if in direct response to the insufficiency of dreams as a means of bringing Odysseus home, Penelope responds to the stranger's assurances that her dream is true, not only by proclaiming it false, but by announcing her intent to set up the contest of the bow and the axes. It is as if Penelope reacts to the hazy unreality of the dream by now insisting on an active and external test that will determine whether the stranger is a physical match for the former Odysseus. The test of the bow will actively pit the present claimant to the name of Odysseus against the former owner of that name, who, she remembers, used to set up the axes, quote, like timbers to hold a ship and stand far off and send a shaft through them. Even as Penelope is claiming she will go away with that one who most readily strings the bow and sends an arrow through the axis, she recalls entering, quote, this house as a bride, a lovely place, full of life, and speaks of it, remembering, sorry, and speaks of remembering it someday even in dreams. Again, memory is prominent. Commentators have puzzled at Penelope's apparently abrupt decision to set up the contest at a moment when she has just received assurance, through the dream, of Odysseus' imminent return. And some have taken it as evidence that she has already unmistakably identified Odysseus. But both views seem to overlook all that might be entailed in aligning her carefully nurtured memories of the absent Odysseus 
with the physical reality of the man before her. Nowhere, perhaps, is her situation more acutely presented than in the poet's careful description at the beginning of Book 21 of Penelope's entry into the chamber where the bow is stored. First, the recollection as she climbs the stairs, key in hand, of the bow's provenance. Then the bellowing noise of the opening door. Penelope's reaching to lift the bow from its peg. And finally, her tears throughout, but especially as she removes the bow from its case and lays it gently on her knees. For Odysseus himself, we learn, this bow was a memorial of a friend who died. Quote, always it was stored away in his halls, a memory of a beloved guest friend. Now, for Penelope, the bow functions as a strong physical reminder, even as a sort of presence, of the Odysseus of long ago, who, quote, went in the ship with the sweeping oars from Ithaca. It is therefore not altogether astonishing that this, despite the tra stranger's tremendous success in stringing the bow, and in demonstrating that, as he himself puts it, the strength is still firm in me, Penelope's test in some sense fails her. She is, perhaps appropriately, not present to witness the event. Even the news that the suitors have been slain fails to bring about the desired recognition for Penelope. As her memories of Odysseus become ever more vivid, the tension between the remembered Odysseus and the stranger seem only to become, seems only to become increasingly acute. At the beginning of Book 23, having dismissed Eurycleia's second attempt to identify Odysseus to her by means of the scar, Penelope is described as polled in two directions. Number 12, one moment she'd see him as she looked in his face. The next, she would not recognize him in his rags. Telemachus cannot comprehend his mother's obduracy and refusal to face what now seems so obvious. Quote, my mother, harsh mother, with the hard heart inside you, why do you turn away from my father like this and do not sit beside him and ask him questions and find out about him? Penelope, however, insists that such direct questioning cannot be her way. This is still number 12. My child, the spirit that is in me is full of wonderment, and I cannot find anything to say to him, nor question him, nor look him straight in the face. But if he is truly Odysseus and he has come home, then we shall find other ways and better to recognize each other. For we have signs that we know of between the two of us only, but they are secret from others. What is the difference between recognition through questioning, a mode that was, after all, recommended to Telemachus by Athena in Book One, and the way of signs? Consider the particular sign that seems finally able to enable Penelope to look Odysseus straight in the face and to embrace him as her husband. This sign is the marital bed, or more strictly speaking, a sign skillfully embedded in its structure. Odysseus claims a great sign, mega sema, was worked into the carefully, artfully, sorry, artfully made bed, and emphatically announces himself as maker of the bed. Quote, I myself built it and no one else. Tode go kamon udetis alos. He describes how he constructed both bed and bedroom around an olive tree whose stout trunk he fashioned into a bedpost. Throughout his detailed account of the bed's construction, Odysseus stresses the care and skill with which the long-leaved olive bush that grew in the courtyard was stripped of foliage and transformed into a great sign of Odysseus himself and of his marriage to Penelope, a sign known only to himself and Penelope and to one maid. While once more stressing the bed's significance, Quote, and so to you I make this sign manifest, 
end quote. He acknowledges he does not know whether the bed is still in place, empedon, or has somehow been moved. And it is this language that the poet echoes as he describes Penelope's recognition of not Odysseus, but the sure signs he has given. Number 12 on the handout, quote, she recognized the firm signs, semat empeda, that Odysseus had given. It is tempting to look away from the object that is so prominent a feature of this scene and concentrate on the participle that introduces Odysseus's disclosure. Growing angry, achthesas. To focus exclusively on this anger is, however, to assume that the various objects to which the poem itself gives such prominence are largely divorced from the mental and emotional experiences they appear to interrupt or divert our attention from. Such a focus assumes that the real action occurs internally while our eyes are distracted by an unnecessary excess of external detail. On such a reading, the fine tunic and brooch, the still prominent scar, the elaborately fashioned key that admits Penelope to the long-sealed storage room, and the strangely rooted bed all seem detached from mental events rather than objects actively involved in those events. It is, however, worth considering the possibility that the physical marks and objects so carefully detailed in the poem have real significance. This is not to suggest that Odysseus' anger is of no significance. Odysseus may indeed have to be shocked out of his assumption that Penelope has simply remained unaltered in and by his absence. His disturbance at hearing that the bed seems to have lost its distinctive immobility is not insignificant. The bed is both a testing by Odysseus of Penelope's fidelity and a testing by Penelope of Odysseus' devotion and memory. Just as Penelope doesn't quite know who Odysseus is, he doesn't quite know who Penelope is. The recognition of Penelope and Odysseus is not simply a one-sided affair. Yet we might prefer to think that mutual recognition can dispense with the artifice of signs, and indeed that an indifference to externals is the very hallmark of the marital like-mindedness Odysseus described while still with the Phaeacians. Quote, For nothing is better than this, more steadfast, than when two of one mind in their thoughts share the house as husband and wife. The poem, however, seems to insist that the deepest forms of recognition may depend on our ability to look not simply at each other, but at an external object, which in such looking functions not simply as an external material object, but as a sign of something beyond itself. The best signs, moreover, may be those in which the thing signified is an open secret, apparent to many, but perhaps legible only to those who attend to its intimate structure. To an unversed observer, the bed looks like any other. The secret of its construction is not outwardly visible, but depends on knowing how it was made. It doesn't itself disclose its emblematic embeddedness. But to those who know it, it is a sign of immobility, and as literally empedon, or planted in the ground, it is also an immobile sign. Why does Odysseus, the man of many turnings, construct such a symbol? The immobility he posits against the flux of time and change is not an emblem that is his alone, but belongs equally to and depends equally on Penelope, or more, accurate, more accurately, on neither alone, but on their relation to each other. It is, in fact, Penelope who, as we saw, uses the verb gignosco in the first-person plural and in the middle voice. We shall recognize each other. Gnosometh alelon. 
One final scene of recognition deserves attention. In Book 24, Odysseus goes out from the city to see his father. His decision to put even Laertes to the test seems needlessly harsh. But perhaps it helps to listen carefully to what Odysseus tells Telemachus. In the words of Lattimore's lovely translation, quote, I will make trial of my father, whether he will know me and his eyes recognize me, or fail to know me with all this time that has grown upon me. With all this time that has grown upon me. Polun chronon amphiseonta. Literally, much time being around me. Is Odysseus a recognizable individual, or does that name simply conceal distension and multiplicity? Finally, as his grieving father shrouds himself in black dust, Odysseus, unable to bear his father's sorrow, reveals himself. Laertes, however, asks for a sema arifrades, or manifest sign, that will enable him to believe that this man is indeed Odysseus. Odysseus once again offers the scar as a visible mark of his identity. Quote, Look with your eyes upon this scar and know it. Odysseus, however, immediately substitutes an alternative and less immediately physical sign that he is indeed the son of Laertes, a sign that unmistakably establishes their relation. This is number 13. But come, of the trees in the well-worked orchard, let me tell you, the ones you gave me then, and I asked you about each of them, I was still a child as I followed you through the garden, we made our way among them, and you named and told of each of them. Thirteen pear trees you gave me, and ten apple. Forty fig, the vines too you named. Fifty that you would give me, each bearing in succession. There were grape clusters of every variety, whenever the seasons of Zeus came down and made them heavy. Only after Odysseus has offered this second sign, a sign that manages so beautifully to capture at once time's cyclical seasonal pattern and the linear structure of a human lifetime, once a child. Only after that does, Odysse does the poem describe Laertes' response, virtually repeating the language that described Penelope's recognition. Laertes, too, does not simply cognize, gignosco, but truly recognizes, anagignosco. Laertes, too, is given firm signs, Sema tempeda. Whatever the textual debates about the repetition of these lines, it seems utterly appropriate that the sign offered Laertes take the form not simply of an external physical mark on his son's body, but of objects that, while literally grounded or rooted, empeda, point like the bedpost beyond themselves. How appropriate that Odysseus recalls here near the end of the poem his earliest questions about cognition questions, both generic and specific. As a child, he asked his father the names of the trees, and in response, his father named them one by one, allowing his son first to identify each one and then to count them and gather them into their kinds. By pointing beyond their immediate physical nature to a rootedness and stability that lies at the very heart of things, both bed and trees become signs that do more than mark things as bodies as one, of one sort or another. They signify not simply by pointing beyond themselves, but by pointing to a groundedness inherent to them. In order to come home, Odysseus must not simply be recognized, but himself discover a world that is recognizable. 
he has, throughout his travels, identified himself as one who persists or endures in the face of a world that seems largely unstable and hostile. Quote, endure, my heart, you have endured more bestial things, end quote. It is hardly accidental that Poseidon is throughout the god with whom Odysseus feels the need to battle for survival. The language of signs suggests that to make some sort of peace with Poseidon and to be at home in a world in which Poseidon holds sway involves not so much pitting oneself against that fluidity as discovering that meaning can be embedded in things and, indeed, that many things speak to us. Thank you.